Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts, and I'm here today with Tracy Johnson. Tracy is a senior program officer for the Data and Insights and Gender Equality Division of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Tracy brings together uh, anthropology with design and data science and basically takes a you know, human-centered approach uh, combined with the behavioral and social sciences to, um, to work in global health. And so today we're going to be speaking a little bit about that approach and a little bit more, maybe more broadly about you know, how anthropology contributes to design and how we can take that kind of human-centered design process uh, and bring it into a field that hasn't been on the podcast too many times. So Tracy, thanks for joining me. Would you start by telling everybody a little bit about how you, um, how you found yourself in anthropology? Sure. After undergrad, I took a fairly circuitous route. I, studied, I had studied psychology and actually women's studies. Um, I thought I wanted to go to law school. That was a detour that did not pan out well. Um, and so I ended up moving to uh, Thailand. Um, I was born and raised in Southeast Asia and decided I wanted to be spend some time back in that part of the world. And uh, so moved to uh, Thailand, was teaching for a while, and then actually started working in the field of global health and development. Um, and while I was there, I started working with uh, the hill, tri- hill tribe called the Hmong. Um, and they were located sort of north of Chiang Mai um, and spent a lot of time working for Save the Children with them and realized during that time that actually um, uh, I knew law school wasn't in my future at that point um, and that anthropology was more the way to go. Yeah, I applied to graduate programs from Thailand. Uh, I knew I'm from, my family at that point was living in the New York area um, so moved back to to New York and went to Columbia to get my PhD in sociocultural anthropology. So you know that does imply that you already knew about anthropology, and so did you? You know, was that something that you had an interest in earlier, or is it just sort of the circumstances of your life and you know the sort of the international aspect of it that sort of turned you on to that? Um, I mean, it was probably a little bit of both. Um, I certainly was, I hadn't taken any anthro in my undergrad, um, but I'd, you know, I'd 
I, of course, had read some Geertz and, um, you know, I'd sort of dabbled in some of the texts that are pretty seminal to to our field without taking any formal courses. So it was it was always something I knew about. It was always something there. And it's funny because I, I definitely um, I'm married to an anthropologist, actually, and sometimes he sort of wonders, would he if he had to choose now, would he still choose anthropology or might he take a different route? Um, and, and for me, it's just like, I, I can't even fathom that. Like I almost, I almost can't even fathom that I experimented with another career that like anthropology and being an anthropologist is, is, has, is such a core part of, of who I am in, or, or my self perception, um, that, uh, it just feels like it's, it's always been there. So. Obviously, you have a passion for anthropology. Was any of that decision also a reaction against what you studied in psychology, or did you, you know, you just you you had this passion and you wanted to sort of expand on what you had already learned? No, it wasn't. I mean, I suppose I could, I, I suppose I could riff on the sort of idea of like thinking about the individual as a unit of analysis versus thinking about the social as a unit of analysis, but. Um, I think that would be slightly disingenuous. It wasn't a reaction to that. Um, uh, it just, it just felt, um, it felt like it made more sense to me in terms of how to understand the world. I will say, in my work, um, and I imagine we'll we'll get into this in a bit. Um, the, you know, what are what drives individuals' emotions and and things like that is sort of a part of of what I do, but, but the idea of thinking anthropology enables you to think on a systems level in a way that I don't think psychology does. And so, um, that just, that just works better for me in terms of how I think it's important to understand the world. And so you come back to New York, enroll at Columbia to get your PhD. And, uh, as I've heard many times, you know, you likely did not learn about practicing uh, while in the program. So what was that discovery process like? Um, yeah, that, no, that is a great question. Um, in great part, because I think, especially at a place like Columbia, there wasn't a lot of focus on necessarily applying the work. Um, and so I, I mean, even as, as recent as several years ago, um, one of my advisors wrote to me and asked if I was like, you know, if I was going to leave the world I was in now and come back to academia or, but actually it was something because I had already done quite a bit of work in the global health and develop, uh, yeah, global health and development field being applied was always a part of how I thought about anthropology. But I, I think I, yes, I think I more had to find my own path in that regard. Um, because there was such uh, an emphasis on academics and academia with at Columbia. And, and in great part, I'm also really, really grateful for that. I mean, the education I received was phenomenal. And I feel like my grounding in theory is, is very strong. And it's something that um, while I don't talk directly about theory when I do my work, it's, it informs really everything um, that that I do and 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 my approach to bringing anthropology to an applied setting. 
So you make your way kind of into the space, you know, you you already had this interest, you've already done a little bit of work. So you, you sort of find your way into the global health space or back there, maybe I should say. Um, but, you know, global health to bringing in design anthropology or human-centered design is probably wasn't the norm. So could you tell us how you started connecting those? Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I left, um, when I finished my PhD, I actually went, I, I went back into global health and development, but it was in a very sort of targeted way. I was chief of party on an anti-trafficking in, in persons task order for USAID. Um, and so my being an anthropologist, my interest in design, none of that was sort of at the forefront. I did that, uh, but but just very frankly, also had a tiny baby and um, didn't want to be traveling a lot. Um, my husband was in the process of getting tenure. Um, and so I decided that I was actually going to uh, gonna sort of shift gears and I went more into the business space. Um, and so I started working for, uh, it was called the Context-Based Research Group and it was an ethnographic research consulting company. Um, and I was their research director. And I really sort of thought, oh, I'm going into this for maybe, you know, a couple of years, allow my son to get a little older, get, you know, my husband to finish the tenure process. But I actually really liked what I was doing. I mean, you know, I, I was surrounded by people in academia, you know, working off of the traditional anthropology timelines. Um, but here I was able to, you know, in the space of the year, design, field, analyze and see results from, you know, much quicker, much faster business oriented ethnographic efforts. And, and the work was interesting. We did a we did a large project for the How Millennials Consume News. This was back in 2008. So the idea of moving, you know, uh, news consumption was moving online was 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 a big sort of question mark for for folks like the Associated Press. Um, so we did work on that. Did a lot of work around. It was with pharmaceutical companies, but really trying to help them understand the experience of things like schizophrenia um, or other sort of all-consuming um, medical issues. And so I actually stayed for quite a while. And it was eight, about, well, eight to nine years ago uh, that somebody reached out to me and said, you know, we're actually bringing design um, into the global health and development space. Do you want to uh, sort of be a part of that. And that was, um, that was my sort of coming back to that world. Um, and it was when I started at, uh, the Gates Foundation. And, and I will say that I, it's, it's a really important, a, a really important part of how I see design is truly bringing the rigor of the social sciences to bear on the design process. And so what I've been able to do within the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is explore different ways to do that. Um, and to find ways to do it that um, might be stronger and more effective than than others. So that's been, I mean, I feel really lucky. It's been a really exciting part of my journey from um, through these different areas from public sector to private sector, and then how you actually bring a sort of more rigorous theoretical process to uh, to your design work. And so I'd like to dig into that, but maybe to set some context, you know, I would, I'm going to presume that that rigor you know, improved over time, if you will, from, you know, maybe when you first went into private to, to today, right? As you've learned and grown yourself. And so, 
you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about what that actual journey has looked like. You know, how have you sort of brought those two together over time uh, and improved your process? What have you learned, you know, and, and could you share with others? And, and I just want to put that in the context of the fact that you're not working directly in UX, which is what everybody's been talking about for quite some time. And, you know, the concept of design is much broader than interfaces. And so I'd love to hear like, you know, how you've, how you've thought about design again, how you've improved your process over time. And, you know, we'll get to maybe how that relates to global health. Yeah, so I would say, I mean, I, I think that it it did start with with going into the private sector, or I think I learned different things at different points. But when when I was working in the private sector um, and doing consulting, one of the puzzles that I really like to work on in in various projects were, you know, was really sort of thinking about what is the theory that's going to help me best explain this? And then finding a way to tell the story of theory that didn't get clients' eyes to glaze over, that didn't, they, you know, they didn't know. Um, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing, but one of my projects was for mouthwash and using using the notion of purity and danger. And so, um, but but not actually sitting there and telling the Johnson and Johnson C-suite that they needed to read Mary Douglas and and think from that theoretical perspective, but but finding a way to translate that um, what theory gives us into a way that can be heard by others more accessibly. Um, and so that was something that I got to practice a lot, again, given sort of the different timing of anthropology in the business sector. And I think, I think that really set me up for then coming to the found, and there, there was sort of a detour. I, I worked for a large, uh, I was research director then at a large digital design agency um, based in Montreal that had offices all over the world. and. Um, and I sort of got to be more in charge there about the projects that we chose and 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 how we delivered on them for clients. Um, but then actually ended up finding myself at the foundation where the new challenge was then one: how do we how do we demonstrate to quantitatively minded people that there actually is a rigor to the social sciences, um, that it's not just going out you know, you don't just collect anecdotal data. There's a way to sort of collect stories and collect experiences um, and be attentive to sampling and, you know, replication of different questions. And so you can, you know, how that feeds into analysis and synthesis of data and so on. Um, But the second big piece of it was, again, that quantitative piece. How do you so that's, you know, the first is how do you bring anthropology to quantitatively minded people, but then also how do you bring design to quantitatively minded people? And one of the ways I've done that is to actually really borrow from market segmentation process of sort of marrying qualitative and quantitative. So, you know, I like to say with quantitative, you get the what and the where, and then with qualitative, you get the why and the how, and sort of marrying those in interdisciplinary projects and then being able to start to pull out those insights from the qualitative work, but map it to a large end that you get from the quantitative sampling and that you would get from surveys that you would do for segmentation. Um, And so being able to help people see that story I told you isn't just a random story, that that story represents 
this proportion of the population um, and and here's where they are and here's the drivers of the, their behavior and this is why this matters. I mean, in some ways, being an anthropologist in these different settings, like what is the what is the currency um, within a particular setting I'm in? What is the language? How do we borrow from that and bring it into our practice as anthropologists and as designers um, so that we are meeting people where they are and, and bringing them along to recognize the value of these different disciplines and, and how they come together? Now there's there is a lot in there. I just so real quick, I want to step back to the theory piece again. So, like in terms of meeting people where they are, is there anything that you've learned over the years uh, to help do that with theory? So, like, do you use metaphors, or is there you know is there something that you found that works? I mean, I, it's hard to say best in all circumstances, of course, but that is sort of your go-to for translating. Yeah, I mean, I think I do think that metaphors um, metaphors work really well. Um, I'm thinking back to that mouthwash project, and um, you know, sort of using different metaphors to help people understand why you can't sell mouthwash by telling people their mouth is dirty. Um, people don't want to know that there's potentially dirt or you know sort of uh, matter out of place inside their their body and and so um using different metaphors to to help people help the clients sort of understand that um really get them out of just their particular product or service or whatever it is and and get them to think more broadly so now to come back to one of the next bits there bringing anthropology to the quants so you know you discussed about helping them see, you know, your methods and how that, you know, and how the findings then ultimately can map out to sort of the the larger kind of end value. But is there anything else that you've learned that's been helpful just in introducing anthropology to an audience like that? I almost think that anthropologists could learn a little bit from the design community. I I remember when I first started getting involved with design, one of the things I was struck by was that they took parts of the um, ethnographic process and cut it up into sort of bite size, if you will, marketable chunks, right? Like it, it always struck me like, wow, they're taking this, this whole process that is actually so integrated and, you know, um, is each piece is dependent on the previous and so on. And they're breaking it up and and sort of marketing these different elements of what we see as anthropologists as a full end-to-end -end process. I think we could learn from that in doing a better job of really explaining explaining the rigor behind different decisions in our processes, why we do what we do. So, for example, Qualitative is assumed oftentimes to not really do, not have a very good sampling frame. Um, and so really helping people understand how we sample, what are things like saturation, for example, um, and putting those into terms that, that make sense to more quantitatively minded people. One of the reasons I asked that question is because I think, you know, you're probably well aware that we often don't have a seat at the table, whether that's in organizations or as a talking head on the media. We don't seemingly don't always do the best job of selling ourselves and our discipline. And of course, you're playing, you know, 
you know, the organization you're at is working at a level that I presume, you know, you have have to present the sort of value of the approach in front of some significant stakeholders at time, you know, some significant decision makers, if I will. And, um, you know, so I'm trying to basically learn from you and to share with the get, you know, the listeners, anything you've learned along the way that would really help everybody at whatever sort of wherever we're all operating. But of course, the question is, is how and what's the best way, I think, often. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that's some of what I was trying to get at is like really explaining um, how you make decisions about who to talk to, to where, where to talk to them, that there is, you're not just picking random people, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, so what that process looks like, um, what, how you're deciding sort of what questions to, to talk about, how you're sort of incorporating language into how you begin to have those conversations, that you're listening for the language that people use and, and then you're adapting it. I think explaining the thought processes that go into all of those steps is, is one way that I have found to work. Um, because it, it shows that there is, there, there are those thought processes. There's not just, this isn't just sort of random conversations, right? I think the other thing is being creative in how we talk about what we do. Again, I don't, I would never sort of walk into a room or start a presentation telling someone what, you know, what is the theory I'm going to talk to them about or citing an author or um, eventually if they ask me, I will tell them that, but that's not where I'm, I'm, I'm going to start. I fear that sometimes we know we don't have a seat at the table, or we know that if we've been invited to the table, even for a few moments, that we've, we feel like we've got to make a huge impression when we're there. And so we really sort of want to get our perspective out and strong. Um, and I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we do that. There's more to be done through being creative and connecting with people and connecting them to stories in a way that they want to hear those stories, but they understand how to place those stories within the social landscape. So one of the things, this was early on in my tenure at the foundation, um, and it was the beginning of using segmentation to experiment with, with as a tool to be able to do this. And I was um, presenting to some, some research data to um, a woman who is now quite senior in, in the foundation. And, and um, I was telling her the story of this group of families, specifically through the story of the mother-in-law. And this was a mother-in-law of a family um, in Bihar state in India. And, uh, and the story was about how the mother-in-law wouldn't let the community health worker across the threshold into the house, that she was the gatekeeper for that community health worker. But I was able to show her then that this was a type of family and it fell within a specific group and that there were these other types of families. And she's, and that was what really clicked for her because she was like, I have been in the field and I have met this woman that you're talking about. And I knew it was important, but I didn't know what to do with that data. You know, it was anecdata. I, it was a story. I didn't know what to do with it because I've met other mothers-in-law who were very different. 
And so now you're helping me see that she's a type and she's a persona of a, of a particular group of families. And I can then find that group of families and I can design an intervention for a community health worker to identify what's the role of the mother-in-law in the family I'm talking to. And if when I find this type of mother-in-law, how do I adjust my behavior to get them the help, to get the, her daughters-in-law the health information that they need? So it was a real moment for her where she was like, okay, this isn't just a story. This is representative of, of something larger. If an anthropologist wants to incorporate human-centered design more into their process, you know, how do you think that they should approach that? And how do you think they should make sure that the rigor is there as well and not get, you know, not fall into the trap of kind of the rapid ethnography, if you will? I, I think there's a way to also think about how do you bring the rigor through the iterative process that maybe when you start out, you don't necessarily get to talk from the very beginning. You don't get to talk to everything, everyone you want to talk to about everything you want to talk about. Um, but you sort of compromise and find a way to sort of bring that into the process. I think in anthropology, and I remember this when I was working in the private sector soon after um, I finished my PhD, I remember being with clients and, you know, one interview and they would say, okay, tell me what you think. Um, and I was like, That's, we're not doing it based on one interview. We're doing it based on multiple interviews. We need to look across all of them and see what we have learned. That said, I had to learn to be flexible and to give them some initial responses and to tell an open-ended story. I, you know, it's not always easy. Again, you have to be creative because you have to buy yourself the time to go back to the, the client and be like, oh, what I said after that one interview has really changed. Um, but not, not always demand, ha have flexibility in our process as well. And I think anthropologists can learn that from designers and can see that we can, we can still get the rigor, but it might be a little bit more through the iterative process. Um, and, and that's okay. And it's better, better to be there in that iterative process to not, and, and not close yourself off from, no, we must do it this one way and we must do it full out and then we'll have the answer. When I've been challenged on that, I've often said that I'd rather make some impact than no impact and then improve on it in the next round. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're not, and especially when you're working in the private sector, right? Like, you know that there are going to be iterations of a product or service and better to, to be invited into that long-term process than to close yourself off from that. So you're, you're busy in a number of ways. Obviously, work, I'm sure, keeps you very busy, but you also just published a paper. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I have a large project um, that I've been working on, um, or series of investments that I've been working on for the foundation to try to be more clear about understanding vulnerability. At the, um, typically, um, you know, in global health, we think about vulnerability as something that's sort of biomedical, right? Um, and one of the things that I wanted to help us think about was um, what we might call the social determinants of health, um, which are the sort of social, cultural, and environmental drivers of vulnerability. Um, because really, 
in, in global health and development, we think that people think of health as something that resides within an individual, and, and it does. But, but health is eminently social because everything else about health, the decisions that we make about it, how we seek health, how we, how we maintain well-being, all those things, those are all social. Um, and so I have this, I have this engagement to try to bring more of that perspective to the foundation. And it's actually, it's called Pathways. Um, for folks who are interested, they can look up uh, projectpathways.org. That's just a sort of beginning beta site of what we're producing. Um, but it borrows from anthropology, from um, uh, some behavioral science, from market segmentation, um, and from large and data science um, to, to really help people understand the drivers of behaviors that make people vulnerable to core health outcomes. And in this case, the health outcomes span uh, reproductive, maternal, child health, and nutrition outcomes. And the thing is, is that this is actually a design-led project. Um, so brought together all these disciplines, but we very intentionally had the what we would call the prime on the um, so the the prime grantee um, on this series of investments was a design firm. Um, and so what this article is about, it's actually it's entitled "A Role for Design in Global Health: Making the Concept of Vulnerability Actionable." Um, and it was published in Sheiji, which is the Journal of Design, Economics, and Innovation. Um, and so it lays out the contribution that design brought to this process of marrying all of these different um, social sciences, behavioral sciences, um, and data science, um, and how design brought those all together in a way that the global health and development field can can do more with the notion of social and cultural vulnerability. Sounds like an interesting read. I can link to the website that you mentioned. You know, I'm curious to maybe just get your stance on, especially in like a space like this, on co-creation and how co-creation plays into to global health. You know, because in so much literature, and even you know, with some of the very large sort of design innovation firms. The co-creation part almost seems more like a performance than like a genuine long-term engaged act. And so do you, you know, do you have any thoughts of, you know, from your experience of how we can engage stakeholders better in that process? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and it's a question that I, you know, in addition to my own projects, I act almost in sort of an internal consultant capability in the foundation. So when other program officers are working with design firms, they can come to me and I can help them design their projects. They can ask me for advice about design firms. They can they can ask me questions about a design project that they've got. Um, and where a lot of questions come is in the co-creation and the prototyping phase. Um, and so, and I think, um, I think part of that is because it's it is too often the case that we really do start with the end in mind, um, or our clients or our stakeholders start with the end in mind. Um, and so, how do we create a co-creation process that has the right inputs to get people out of that mindset of starting with the end in mind? Um, I think oftentimes not enough 
a co-creation session is only gonna be as strong as the inputs that you brought into that session. Um, and so I don't, I don't think we often spend enough time really getting those inputs right. Um, and I think that's when it sort of becomes a little bit of theater. I think the other thing that I've often cautioned design firms working in this space is, well, when you have to help people understand what is the role of prototyping. Um, in my world, prototyping is seen as, okay, you're actually starting to make some solutions. And that's a pretty common expressive feeling. And then it was, oh, okay, prototyping is about generating a hundred viable ideas. But the idea of actually prototyping to learn is, is sort of lost. People don't understand that those hundred ideas that were generated weren't meant to actually result in a hundred concepts and a hundred prototypes. They were, it was, it was to refine our thinking and that we might only get, you know, five viable ideas out of that. Um, but that's okay. You don't want to sort of save those those hundred ideas. You want to use realize that we we prototype to learn, to continue to refine our learning. Um, and I think that's something that we don't do. Designers don't do a good job of explaining. I think also I like to tell people you need to you need to capture the journey of a prototype. Why why you have to be clear. Why did it change? What again, what were those inputs? What was the part of the co-creation process where something actually changed? And why does the end result actually look wildly different from from the initial concept? I am um, I once held a prototype fair with a number of my grantees here in in the foundation to actually um, have people walk through and see what it meant to look like to look at a prototype in all different stages. And it wasn't just product prototypes, it was also service prototypes. It was um, uh, prototyping a strategy development. Um, and so really breaking down those pieces of what makes a good co-creation process and what does that then put you on a springboard to do, but being clear that it's not just about everybody coming into your room with a bunch of post-its, <laughs> that there's, there's more to it than that. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you to hear more about your perspective, where would be a good place? Um, probably LinkedIn. So Tracy Pilar Johnson, that's how most people um, reach out to me is, is through LinkedIn. Well, Tracy, thanks very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It was really nice chatting with you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.